Hello and welcome to Employment Law Focus. I'm Jonathan Rennie, a partner in TLT's Glasgow office, and I'm joined today by Grace. Grace Caldicott is an associate in our Manchester office. Now, we know that winter presents all kinds of seasonal issues for employers, from a barrage of sickness to office parties and all the things in between. But on top of that, this year sees the addition of COVID-19, the cost of living crisis and the energy crisis. So it's a very different scene to what we're used to. In this episode, we'll offer up our analysis of how some companies are addressing this and explain where the biggest risks are likely to be. We'll also offer our advice on everything from writing hardship policies to offering early access to wages and looking after people's financial well-being. First, let's look at some news, Grace. Thanks, Jonathan. So the first thing we wanted to touch on is New York's pay transparency law, which took effect in November. So it's something that we have seen in the news recently. So businesses in New York City are now required to list good faith salary ranges for any posting for a new job, whether that be promotion or transfer opportunity. So this is essentially what they honestly believe that they are willing to pay for a role that they're advertising for. So the main aim of this new law is to help close gender and race wage gaps and greater pay transparency, which will result in more leverage to discuss and negotiate pay for prospective employees. However, it's interesting as when reading about this, we have seen some slightly strange results with the New York Post giving a salary range of $50,000 to $145,000 for the same reporter position. Yeah, I find this fascinating, Grace. Because it might mean, for example, people in the US apply for a job in New York to do some kind of comparison or benchmarking exercise for their own salary in a different state, or simply to ask for that pay level if they are working remotely. So it throws up some interesting consequences. We know in the UK, this is often a point when jobs are advertised about reasonable salary levels or market rates and questions about what that means. There's currently no legal requirement in the UK or Ireland for companies to be transparent about pay in this way that's suggested in New York. And there's no suggestion this is coming to UK cities at the moment. We do, of course, have mandatory gender pay gap reporting for businesses with more than 250 employees. And that goes some way to people being able to make inquiry or have information around pay. And we also know that in March this year, the UK government launched a pay transparency pilot scheme to try and help improve employment opportunities and close pay gaps. It was the Minister for Women, Baroness Stedman-Scott, who launched the initiative with the intention being to level up employment opportunities for women. So what we're expecting to see is participating employers, and there's a limited number of those. These participating employers will run pilots aimed at closing the salary gaps by publishing salaries on all job adverts. It's hoped that this salary transparency will empower job seekers and employees and help them with negotiations. From my perspective, it will actually help with people applying for jobs, knowing what they will be paid and not wasting their time and not wasting employers' time and getting involved in all of that time wasting potentially. If employers are considering doing this, whether as part of the pilot or otherwise, it's worth paying attention to these developments in New York to see what issues arise. That leads us nicely into today's main topic, 
What can employers do to help their employees during the cost of living crisis? As we move into winter and the cost of living crisis continues, then clearly more and more people are at risk of in-work poverty as finances are being squeezed like never before. A particularly scary stat from a recent ONS study detailed that as many as 77% of UK adults reported being worried nearly every day about the rising cost of living. For many people, that stress is likely to impact their job performance, with one in four employees saying that money worries affect their ability to do their job. Yeah, and we may well see that percentage increase, which is obviously extremely scary um, and concerning for employees as the crisis continues to impact people's lives. Employers may, for example, find a greater number of employees are having to look after their kids because they can't afford childcare, or perhaps they're struggling to sleep because of the stress as a result of the crisis. It's a difficult time for many, many people, and employees are likely to need increased mental health and well-being support from their employer, as well as considering financial well-being support. So I think that takes us then to the obvious question as to what employers can do to help, and we have some experience of that. There was a recent CIPD survey that found one in five employees don't think their employer is doing enough to support their financial well-being. It highlighted issues like people not earning enough money to meet their basic needs or to have enough spare money for emergencies. So what did the CIPD suggest? Well, fairly obviously, firstly, they suggested that employers pay a fair and livable wage. A PwC study suggested half of large employers are doing this. Secondly, provide financial well-being support, for example, targeted benefits, signposting free financial advice, and trying to normalise conversations about money, and of course, training line managers to talk about it. So there's an educational piece. The CIPD also suggested that there could be support for in-work progression to help people increase their earnings potential. So not only is there a moral duty to support employees through this difficult time, there's also a business case for doing so, including enhanced reputation, easier recruitment, better labour relations and improved employee commitment and motivation. So if we move on to look at some of the trends that are arising out of the cost of living crisis and some of which have been picked up in the CIPD's suggestions. So the first one, and apologies that this is very obvious, um, but employers can obviously support their staff through an increase in pay and benefits. So as we know, employers need to be mindful of any legal minimums For example, the real living wage, which is now £10.90 across the UK and £11.95 in London. Whilst employers are not generally under a legal obligation to increase wages, many employment contracts will, of course, include annual pay review clauses. And it's important to remember that any annual pay review must be carried out in good faith. Otherwise, the employer will be in breach of the implied duty to maintain their employees' trust and confidence. Of course, I'm old enough to have been through financial crisis in the past. And I think we know from those experiences that actually many people might just be happy to have a job at this time and they might not therefore kick up a fuss. They might not resign and claim constructive dismissal if they're not given a pay rise. But clearly there are these technical interpretations of contract terms and there are, as Grace says, issues around trust and confidence. We know that we have employees under enormous financial pressures 
and employers will expect, no doubt, to be pushed into difficult conversations. And it's really the extent to which employers can meaningfully manage these difficult conversations, I think, that makes the difference. I think we know the statistics and we see and hear it in the news. The ONS figures for October 2022 showed that in real terms, adjusted for inflation, that total pay fell in this year by 2.4% and regular pay by as much as 2.9%. For many employers, of course, this drop in real pay may trigger a review of current pay and increasing wages. And that's what we all hope for. That's really interesting, Jonathan. And as we know, there's so much in the news about this at the moment, and it's really on everybody's minds. And we wanted to point out as well that we have seen several large employers, an example being John Lewis, giving a one-off cost of living bonus payment to staff to try and combat these issues as well. Yeah, that's a great example, Grace. And you and I both want to see some more imaginative remuneration strategies from employers over the next months. And we will update listeners with those as we go. So another perhaps less obvious option for employers is the introduction of employee hardship funds, which will help employees and potentially their dependents who are facing increased financial hardship. So this is essentially a fund for anyone who doesn't already know to support staff who are struggling to pay their bills. With this though, and it comes with a warning of caution, it's important that it's accompanied by a robust and unambiguous policy setting out how the fund can be accessed by employees. And I think that can be a tricky thing to draft. There's some key considerations and basic ones like whether any payment out of the fund will be a loan or whether it's an outright grant. If it is to be a loan, it will need to be paid back. How does that work? When does it need to be paid back? What happens if somebody leaves the business? What happens if there's disciplinary issues? What happens if they've perhaps overestimated the state of their financial distress? Questions might arise as to whether an employee will need to have a certain length of service to qualify, whether they will have to do anything to prove the hardship, for example, providing bank statements. There'll be questions about how the applications would be made and any circumstances in which the payment will not be made, which could include, for example, the financial performance of the business. So we know we are being classic lawyers in plugging very robust written policies, but it is really important that they are in place to ensure consistency and to avoid accusations of bias or discrimination. So our suggestion uh, would be a flat sum to be paid out to all individuals who meet the criteria. And if you do want to pay a different sum according to the employee's individual circumstances, then this should be very clearly set out in the policy. And it's also really important that you do seek legal advice before putting this policy in place or considering a variation of the payments depending on circumstances, because there could be a number of employment law or tax implications. Another area for employers to consider is fringe benefits. These sometimes small things that cumulatively can make a very big difference for staff. It can make a very big difference, particularly for those on the lowest incomes. So, for example, discounted food has been offered by supermarkets and some retailers, help with travel costs. We've seen cycle to work schemes over a number of years now, perhaps season ticket loans, free eye tests and shopping discounts. I would say from personal experience, free meals and snacks at work go down very, very well. And for those people working at home, we've seen some employers provide support for home insulation costs. I know personally, Jonathan, I really look forward to going into TLT's offices because they have plenty of healthy snacks and fruits. So I can corroborate your comments on that. 
Nice one. I do genuinely look forward to them. (laughs) Obviously, we're talking mostly about employees' needs during this podcast, but obviously employers are under a significant cost pressure at the moment as well. So there's going to be a limit on how much they can invest in these kinds of initiatives, which is something that we wanted to acknowledge. But we are seeing some other ideas too, aren't we, Jonathan? I think as always, technology can provide some support and help here. And particularly, we've heard of initiatives from employers operating early access to wages. So they might be thinking about a hardship fund, but perhaps they can't afford to do that. And organisations have partnered with schemes like WageStream, there's one called Hasty Pay and Revolut technology applications to give employees early access to wages. So essentially, these schemes allow employees to access a percentage of their wages before payday in exchange for what I'm told is a small transaction fee. And it might allow employees to change the frequency of their pay periods. For example, somebody that gets paid monthly might be able to choose to get paid fortnightly. So this appears to be particularly popular with employers with shift-based frontline workers, but we wanted to flag that there are a number of concerns to look out for around these applications. So whilst employers in areas such as hospitality and healthcare say they are better than payday loans, as Jonathan's already pointed out, there is a transaction charge and it could simply delay the financial difficulties for those individuals. Some critics have also warned the sector is unregulated and there are potentially also issues with employees becoming reliant on getting their earnings early particularly prevalent if employees are advancing small amounts regularly, the transaction fees can, of course, add up. Yeah, there's something with a few of the gambling apps a little bit about this, where we might be looking back on these applications in a period of time with with a different lens, but I, I, I hope not, and they are worth looking at. Financial wellbeing policies is something that employers are looking at also, and this can be an alternative or in addition to the other options and it can be about providing financial education and budgeting tools there can be messages or promotions around saving more into pension schemes and trying to signpost staff towards debt advisors where that is needed as grace has said there is a tendency to lean towards policies when we're looking at managing these issues certainly we do have clients that have financial well-being policies and this is something we've tended to see more of since covid A financial wellbeing policy could set out the financial support and benefits available to employees and advise on how they can be accessed. So here at TLT, we have six wellbeing pillars that drive our activities in this space. And of course, financial wellbeing is one of those. It's really useful because it informs decisions and if talking about it normalises conversations about money, which helps break the stigma. The stigma point is an interesting one, Grace, for sure. Nobody likes talking about money, says the Scotsman. (laughs) For example, people might be worried about being prejudiced at work, even if it can sometimes work in your favour. And obviously, socioeconomic status is not a protected characteristic in law. So that's a really interesting point, actually, Jonathan, as I know there's been a recent call by a UN special reporter to add povertyism, which is essentially a negative stereotyping of the poor, to anti-discrimination law, alongside racism and sexism. Whilst that doesn't seem to be on the government's agenda at present, employers should certainly be trying to create a workplace culture where employees don't feel judged or stigmatised due to their financial position, for example, their postcode, 
And this aim can obviously be reflected in any financial well-being policy. Unfortunately, as we all know, it will be those on the low incomes who will be hit the hardest by the cost of living crisis. And so it's important they feel supported at work so far as possible, and that these conversations about money worries are normalised. So if we think about hybrid working, then maybe that's another option for employers who are looking to support their employees. That There's pros and cons of that. Allowing staff to work flexibly between home and the office allows people to make their own individual choice, maybe even on a particular day, whether they want to pay for the train or bus into work versus the cost of heating their home. And of course, as I've already mentioned during the podcast, it's not only employees who are feeling the effects of the energy crisis and several employers will be feeling the pinch with many even looking at whether they can afford to remain open. And of course, if you're working from home, you can wrap up, put a blanket around your legs, put your dressing gown on. But if you go into the office, that's obviously not acceptable. And employers can't just turn down the heating or decrease the lighting to save on money. And of course, always flipping back to the legals, there is health and safety laws that dictate that employers need to provide a comfortable workplace. We saw some of this very recently, Grace, in a debate in Germany around whether employers could require their employees to work from home in the winter to to save energy. We're not quite at that stage in the UK and that could, could be scaremongering. But whilst this might reduce some cost, this doesn't exactly get around the problem. There are still potential costs for the employer in requiring employees to work from home. Yes, and it's also really important to remember that employers have the same health and safety obligations for people working at home as for any other worker. So employers will still need to ensure their risk assessment covers any home workers and considers things like stress, poor mental health, using equipment like computers and laptops safely, which would of course include carrying out a DSE assessment for individual workers where those regulations apply, and the working environment. They must then review that and implement any steps identified. So we're trying to be very practical about these health and safety concerns. But let's face it, employee morale is also incredibly relevant here. Rising energy costs may impact employers, but so too would a loss of employee productivity and loyalty and employees going somewhere else. So if working in the office is still a preference for a number of staff, employers might want to evaluate the non-financial impact of pushing for more working from home. So just moving on to the next topic, we wanted to raise this as we've had a number of clients coming to us with queries on the topic of employees looking for additional jobs. So we're finding that employers are seeing a greater number of their employees wishing to work a second job to help bolster their income. So perhaps it's worth exploring the legal position in relation to this. So I think the reality with employment contracts is that they're not tailored for situations of financial crisis or rising costs or astronomical inflation. So the contract term that employers might look at and question whether it applies here is an exclusivity clause. So there might be such a clause requiring individuals to dedicate themselves to their particular employer. And of course, there's an implied duty of good faith and fidelity that restricts employees going and getting a second job and not advising their primary or or principal employer. But it's not unlawful for an employee to get a second job. Normally, these things are dealt with by consent, meaning that an employee goes and asks their employer, perhaps describes their financial distress, tries to reach agreement on it, rather than focusing on the particular contract terms. 
And I think we know, Grace, that in employment law, there's a practicality to be able to have those conversations and consultation rather than employers pulling out a contract and saying, pretty Dickensian terms, you have to work exclusively for us. So as has been a theme in the podcast today, we know that employers want to be seen to be supporting their employees financially and employees who try to seek to stop their employees working elsewhere where it has no impact on their current job are likely to be seen as acting unreasonably. And as employment lawyers, we are always thinking of the possibility of litigation. So it's really important that you don't kind of go off on a whim and have a knee-jerk reaction to an employee requesting this and that you think about it carefully and properly in the context of their job. So a clause requiring an employee to seek written consent, as Jonathan has already mentioned, is definitely preferable over a blanket prohibition. So it may be more appropriate for junior members of staff as the second job is unlikely to cause the first employer harm and they can then, of course, consider allowing it. So some of you might be thinking about the implications of second jobs from a working time perspective. Clearly, all time that an individual spends working counts and accumulates towards their 48-hour working week limit. So that is something to be mindful of. So it might really be worth employers making any consent to work for another employer conditional on the employee signing a 48-hour working week waiver or opt-out. And we all know that exclusivity terms have been unenforceable in zero-hours contracts since May 2015, but we wanted to flag that there have been further regulations recently made which will extend this protection to low-income workers. So that is workers who earn less than £123 per week, and it is estimated that that encompasses 1.5 million workers in the UK. So this is going to come into force on the 5th of December, and it is something that employers need to be wary of moving forward. As well as some of these unique issues for this winter, it's worth thinking about how the business as usual issues might play out this year. And of course, best practice is always changing in that regard. So we're going to have a little look at sickness and Christmas parties, which hopefully don't go hand in hand. So employers are, of course, likely to see increased levels of sickness over the winter period. This is in part as a result of the usual seasonal bugs, including the continued presence of the dreaded COVID, but also due to NHS backlogs, which are causing delays in access to healthcare. So our client experience would be that for those employers that attempt to reduce absences for genuine illness, that that can be quite counterproductive. The last thing employers want really is for people to come into the workplace sick and to spread their illness to colleagues or perhaps to work through a viral infection and end up with a long-standing post-viral syndrome. I think for employers to promote a positive attendance culture, they really need to be able to engage in normal dialogue with staff, to be able to understand what's going on with them, to be able to measure and monitor, of course, but just to have an awareness of how serious the issues are to prevent things escalating, because often around absence, The real issue is communication or stored up grievances. So employers might also want to ensure there is a focus on employee well-being and health promotion to try and reduce illness in the first place. As we know, prevention is better than cure. In the run-up to Christmas in particular, burnout and stress is a real factor contributing to absence. For me, that focus on well-being might include 
offering flu jabs. It might be not making it mandatory for staff to attend Christmas parties and therefore being respectful of their family time. It could be recognizing that during the darker days, staff might overwork and therefore keeping an eye on their work level. And of course, looking at healthy practice in the office, like well-being breaks, yoga, light social events, and of course, trying to have some fun at work. As always, employers need to be mindful of their obligations towards employees, where their illnesses will classify them as disabled under the Equality Act. But that's a huge topic and one that we won't delve into today. So just moving on to our final topic of the podcast today. So this year, we are expecting to see the return of the in-person Christmas party after a couple of years of festivities held over Zoom. So we thought it would be a good time to revisit the potential pitfalls of the work Christmas party and what employers can do to avoid them. So in recent years, we've had the Bellman case, which is an awful case actually, in which an employer was liable for brain damage caused to an employee when he was punched by his MD at drinks following a work party. The facts of this are of course very extreme and the court was very clear in its judgment that it did not support the notion that employers are insurers for violent or other unlawful acts for their employees. However, if a senior member of staff uses an organised work event or even a follow-on to that event to assert their authority over a colleague, vicarious liability is likely to follow. This would apply not only to violence, as was in the case that I've just mentioned, but also other misconduct such as discrimination or sexual harassment. We therefore recommend employers take action in advance of any parties, such as undertaking a risk assessment, ensuring plenty of non-alcoholic drinks are available, and also food and mainly carbohydrates, in my experience, to soak up the alcohol, and also explain to employees in advance ground rules for them to follow at the parties. So before we go, we have got time for a listener question, and it is one that has been plastered over the news and really interesting topic that we wanted to pick up on. So Jonathan, just addressing it to you. So we've seen the new Elon Musk policy that employees must be hardcore in order to stay employed. So I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I think if it was in the UK, that would come back to bite him significantly around psychological harm, personal injury, well-being and and existing contract terms. So all of these staff will have existing contracts that presumably don't use that language. I can't quite think how you define the term hardcore in, in any event. Presumably that's people pushing their personal and work boundaries, which can have quite extreme consequences. So as is often the case, I think it's quite reputationally damaging and I think is a soundbite. It'll be interesting to see how that's followed through because it's it's not legal. Yeah. And we, we hope obviously not to see that in the UK. Thanks for listening. And we hope you found today's episode useful. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app and make sure you subscribe to listen to our future episodes. The information in this podcast is for general guidance only and represents our understanding of the relevant law and practice at the time of recording. We recommend you seek specific advice for specific cases. Please visit our website for our full terms and conditions.